The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I am John Fort. Got a nice rally still going on Wall Street today, though it has faded a bit as investors get optimistic about the reopening of the economy and some better-than-expected earnings. NASDAQ is now a break-even, a little bit positive for the year. The Dow is back right around up above 24,000. All this bullishness coming despite the latest figures showing that 3.1 million Americans filed for unemployment last week. The seven-week total is now 33.5 million. Crude also giving the markets a lift with oil now up about 26% this week. Let's get a deeper dive into today's rally with Bob Pisani. Bob. Hello, John. Good to see you. Uh, This is a very powerful rally. Uh, It's six to one advancing to declining stocks. Uh, S&P is broadly advancing. NASDAQ's over 9,000. Just want to show you the uh, the S&P and what's been going on here, because we've had a lot of trouble getting over 2,900. It's only been there twice since early March. We're knocking on the door again. If we can get decisively over that, that'll be a nice sort of uh, technical resistance level and emotional resistance level uh, for the markets here. And as I said, it's been fairly broad. It's nice to see banks moving, retail stocks moving, energies moving, industrials Tech's also leading, uh, and that's important because when I say broad, so the travel and leisure stocks are all doing a little bit better today. Not necessarily a lot of big headlines. Yeah, the China trade data was better, but you're looking at Carnival. Look at these stocks moving on the upside. Marriott, nice moves up there. In addition to that, we've got NASDAQ 9000, so you've got all of the mega cap names up. These have been the big movers recently, of course. All of these stocks are up. Four to five percent this week or so. Amazon may be a little less, but there's been a huge move. They've been the big movers in the market. Finally, guys, just want to note VIX is now on the verge of going below 30. We're sitting right at it. This has not happened in a long, long time. And I think you'll see people commenting on that just sitting right there at that 30 level right now. Guys, back to you. You know, Bob, that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about, because if I'm reading this correctly, the VIX has been in the 30s for a whole week. We haven't had uh, a number of days strung together with the VIX in the 30s since early March. So even if it doesn't drop into the 20s, if it stays about at this level, what does that mean about what the market's expecting? Well, remember, we were above 80 in the end of March, and we we have remained in the 50s and mid 40s for weeks on end. And a lot of people were just saying this may be where we're at for a while. But in the last few weeks, as uh, not just the stimulus, but the reopening hopes, which is the added thing on top of the stimulus that's been uh, been kicking in, those hopes have really helped push down a lot of the anxiety. The debate, of course, is whether pushing that anxiety down has been justified or whether we're going to get other kinds of issues and reinfections and things like that. But for mom- for the moment, for the moment, the reopening hopes is really what's pushing that anxiety level down and pushing the VIX down. John? Yeah, yeah. Hoping that there aren't uh, other big shoes to drop anyway. Thank you, Bob. Stocks rallying okay. on positive news on the drug front and an optimism that the economy is going to improve as states start to reopen. Former Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein explaining why he supports this move earlier on Squawk Box. I think the right thing to do 
is to kind of push in the direction of opening up the economy. Now, some people express this as dollars versus health, but that's not fair. It's really health versus health because you know poverty, GDP is also kind of, is also a health issue. Uh, life expectancy goes down uh, if there's uh, you know if we have a bad economy, if GDP drops by a lot. All right, how should investors position themselves as the markets and the economy? show signs of life. Joining me now are Charlie Babrinskoy, head of investment group at Ariel Investments, and Scott Kimball, portfolio manager of the BMO TCH Core Plus bond fund. Guys, good afternoon. Uh, good to see you, Charlie, and to hear you soon, Scott. Uh, Charlie, I know that you guys at Ariel notoriously focus on value. So you're breaking up the way you're looking at companies based on businesses unaffected, companies with headwinds, and then those to stay away from. I'm particularly wondering about those in the middle where you might see value. What does value mean to you in this kind of an environment? Yeah, everybody talking about how the market is only down 11% or whatever. If you bifurcate the market in terms of value versus growth, value stocks are down 20% on the year. It's been brutal. And so there's lots of opportunity in value. We don't think the rally has been excessive. And so there are stocks and companies that clearly have significant headwinds here, but we think some of them are temporary. Um, we, there are lots of companies that don't have a headwind. We own Smuckers, and they're selling more peanut butter and more Folgers than they've ever sold. That stock is not attractive, in our opinion. What is attractive are the names with a short-term headwind. They're going to be fine in the long run. So there are lots of examples of this, but we love Madison Square Garden Entertainment, which owns Madison Square Garden. Right now, there's nothing going on at Madison Square Garden, but it's going to come back. There's going to be pent-up demand. That's a great stock. Uh, MSGE is the ticker. Zimmer Biomet, it makes hips and knees. Nobody's doing elective surgery right now, but people are going to need hips and knees again when we get through this, and that stock is very attractive. Uh, I wonder, you also have Viacom CBS here, and maybe I group that in a way together with MSG because eventually, in the long run, they're both looking at advertising as a big part of what brings them back. Uh, but we don't know how quickly advertising is going to come back. So you say these are businesses that are going to be okay. Okay over what term? What kind of risk are you taking on? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. There are some that I think are going to snap back pretty quickly. Again, hip and knees. Zimmer would be an example of that. I think MSG uh, probably takes a little longer because we're going to have some fanless sports events in the short term. But I think people like Viacom CBS, people, they're producing movies. They're going to have a March Madness next year, which they didn't have this year. They're going to have a Masters, which they didn't have. They're going to have political spending, which has been uh, depressed. So you're seeing um, Viacom CBS today is, I think, up like 13% as they showed very strong, resilient earnings today, uh, that business is going to be fine in the long run. All right, Scott, I want to talk to you about bonds, about debt. It seems like for especially bond funds, there's some unusual risk here. Ratings are changing. How are you assessing exactly what investors should should be in, what they should stay away from, and, and how much they should trust uh, the, the categories that have been set on these funds uh, up to this point. Uh, thank you uh, for having me, and I appreciate the question. And I uh, apologize for the lack of video. I had a technical glitch there uh, down the home stretch, but uh, want to just go ahead and uh, and take that question head on and share with you, you know, kind of our philosophy uh, throughout, you know, BMO Global Asset Management. You mentioned the Core Plus Bond Fund and the way we are tackling credit within uh, what's been a, a, a very long and productive credit cycle, but one that had a, a shock environment in March that really 
tested and brought forth a lot of these concerns about what exactly can investors do or whether they're in mutual funds or buying bonds directly on their own to assess uh, creditworthiness. We believe that, you know, this is a market where uh, bottom-up fundamental analysis and taking an independent view on the trajectory of a corporate credit is essential. Rating agencies uh, do the best job they can, but they have a very large bandwidth and are many times are very constrained to some quantitative and qualitative factors they can't deviate from. So don't so trust the ratings that, during this period? wouldn't say don't trust the ratings, but understand that there can be a significant lag in the amount of time it takes to change a methodology to capture what has been a very fast-moving market. So, for example, you have to take a, a fundamental view on a sector that may have a lot of headwinds to it, uh, for example, in the energy space. And you have to take a very nuanced look at the independent valuations of, of the company's assets, as well as the way in which they're exposed to commodity prices, and then sort of use that as an overlay to the ratings, not just using the ratings in and of itself. Got it. Yeah, that, that, that's important with interest rates being where they are, with uh, companies being in trouble as they are and trying to assess that in real time. It's tough. Uh, Charlie, Scott, thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay. Now to the travel sector with a trio of companies reporting earnings today and analysts hoping for some indication of when consumers might be willing to travel again. Let's bring in Seema Modi for more on that. Hey, Seema. John, while Hilton saw a sharp decline in profits due to the pandemic, investors remain encouraged by the recovery it's seeing in China, with occupancy rebounding to above 50 percent from a low of 9 percent in early February. CEO of Hilton, Chris Nassetta, was much more cautious, though, on a recovery in the U.S., emphasizing the need for more testing and for the mortality rate to drop in order for citizens to feel more comfortable traveling again. He also says the rebound in travel will come in waves. First, a pickup in regional travel by car, and then customers slowly getting back on a plane for cross-country travel. He says a vaccine will be a game changer. Now, the key numbers to watch tonight from online travel operators, booking holdings, and TripAdvisor will be on the preservation of cash and what steps both companies are taking to address liquidity concerns after Expedia signed a deal with private equity firms just two weeks ago. John? All right, Seema, thank you. And don't miss Norwegian Cruise Line CEO Frank Del Rio. That's on Mad Money with Jim Cramer tonight at 6 p.m. Eastern. Shares of Moderna, meanwhile, surging after the FDA approved the company's coronavirus vaccine candidate for a phase two trial. Let's bring in Meg Terrell for the very latest. Meg. Hi, John. Well, this is moving at historic speeds. Moderna says it's got the go-ahead to start that mid-stage study of their potential COVID-19 vaccine. And at the same time, they're finalizing the protocol for the phase three trial, which they now expect could begin in early summer 2020. And if all of this goes well, they say they could have potential regulatory approval as early as next year. Now, what this phase two trial is going to do is to enroll up to 600 people in two different age groups. Uh, half will be ages 18 to 55 and half will be over 55. And then participants will be followed for 12 months. But we're not going to be waiting those 12 months for the results and for Moderna potentially to be moving forward in clinical trials. This timeline, you can see going back to January when they first uh, sequenced the vaccine and they or, or had the vaccine sequence finalized, uh, just till now, it's been only a few months. This is some of the fastest timelines we've ever seen in history, John. But there are questions, of course, uh, whether this will end up working and giving us a successful vaccine. Yeah, Meg, I'm wondering about the timeline specifically. The president talked a few days ago about possibly having a vaccine as soon as this year. 
Then he seemed to kind of walk that back. Moderna's timeline seems to be, I think they said, on sale as soon as 2021. Is Moderna being conservative? Is the president being overly optimistic? What, what do the facts say? I think everybody would say all of these timelines are very optimistic. Uh, they count on this work being done at speeds we've never seen before in history, everything going right and essentially going right the first time. So it is possible we will see these vaccines in these timelines. And you know, as for people talking about the fall, uh, some folks are saying they could be used on an emergency basis in high-risk groups like healthcare workers, for example. Uh, so there are a lot of shots on goal and there is a lot of hope that one or more will work but we would be shattering historic records if we actually got a vaccine that fast. Yeah, well, let's hope that happens, but good to have the, the details behind what you really expect. Meg Terrell, thank you. Thank and you. coming up, the ride-sharing companies are soaring today as Lyft's earnings were not as bad as expected. Is this a positive sign for Uber's earnings tonight? Plus, layoffs have hit Silicon Valley with more than 17,000 startup jobs cut so far. We'll look at how bad it could get and who is more vulnerable. The exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Uber announcing today it is leading a $170 million investment round in scooter company Lime. This as the ride-sharing industry remains under a lot of pressure due to the pandemic. Deirdre Bosa got a chance to speak exclusively with Lime's new CEO just a short while ago, and she joins me now with highlights. Deirdre. Hey, John. Well, it isn't just ride-sharing, micro-mobility, e-bikes and scooters. That market has also been hit very hard during the pandemic. Jump shut down 99% of its operations in March and has laid off about 30% of its staff since the year began. Now, as you mentioned, I did have a chance to talk to Nucio Wayne Ting, and he said, though, that he is starting to bring more markets back online and see business come back a little bit. Over the last um, four weeks. We started to relaunch uh, in a more limited way what we call essential services. We're seeing really uh, strong demand from riders who used to rely on us, but also a host of new riders who probably did never consider micromobility. Now that echoed comments that we heard from Lyft's team last night. The company said that it is also seeing some business come back, albeit at a very low base, and that's partly why you're seeing shares surge today. Now, Ting also acknowledged, though, that Lime's valuation took a hit in this deal. We're not going into the details, but it is a down round. Um, and what I'll say is that, um, you know, these are really unprecedented times. Um, and Lime is not the only company um, that is going through um, a cut to its valuation. But the more important thing, um, the more important thing is that this round of financing is going to give us sufficient capital to withstand a downturn and to come back stronger than ever. So what does Uber get out of this deal? Well, it actually gets to give up its micro-mobility, its scooter business to Lime in the process. So essentially, 
getting a quickly growing but very expensive business off its balance sheet as it tries to show investors that it is cutting costs. Of course, Uber reports tonight and investors will be looking at other investments too, much larger ones. Remember that Uber has stakes in ride sharing firms around the world. John. All right, Deidre, efficiencies. Stick around and, and let's talk some more about the sharing economy and ride-sharing giants with Dan Premack, business editor for Axios. Uh, Dan, I, I can't figure out whether ride-sharing is going to come out of this strong, stronger. I mean, it, it's better than riding public transportation, but then again, you're getting into the car of somebody you don't know and you don't know who was in it before. Like with the scooters, are people really going to want to touch this scooter that hasn't been sanitized that somebody else sure. was touching before? But it's better than touching the subway pole? I don't know. Well, how, are, how are investors thinking through what to expect? Uh, I mean, I, I'll, I'll admit, I'm kind of befuddled by the investors right now. What you talked about at the top of this, how you know Lyft shares are up big on their earnings yesterday, and, and then Uber shares are up kind of on the coattails of that, with the assumption that Uber will also show better than expected Q1 numbers. Uh, it, it boggles my mind, honestly. It truly does. Look, it absolutely ride-hailing could become an alternative for some folks who don't want to be on a subway or on a public bus. But if that's the case, if people don't want to be using mass transit, what that means is we are still in a pre-vaccine or at least a pre-therapeutic stage. So I'm not so sure that that means that we are going to have the kind of return to normal, the return to commuting, the return to people you know, going to restaurants and bars and the other reasons they use Uber and Lyft that we had before. It, it's still, to me, a very, very dour outlook for these companies right now. Yeah, and Deidre, how much do you think the companies themselves – even know uh, about wh how uh, demand is going to return. I mean, we've seen both of them make some pretty significant cuts. I'm talking Uber and Lyft uh, ahead of things opening back up. Um, it seems like this move with Lime is, is sort of a, a consolidation, perhaps even part of the plan to lay off. They're not investing as much in their own scooter business, so they're able to pick up somebody else's. How do you read it? John, the short answer is that they have no idea what this is going to look like on the other side. Nobody does. So they're scrambling to cut costs. Remember that even in the best of times, investors weren't really buying into these business models. So like Dan, I would agree with him. I'm sort of mind blown that stocks that uh, lift share price is just surging on the back. But remember, it's coming off a very low base. As of yesterday, shares were down 40% year to date. Remember that this company IPO'd in the $70 range um, with a valuation of about $16 billion, I believe. So they have come down a long way. Perhaps there's the argument to get in them if you think that they're at least going to survive in some form. But I think what's really interesting with this Uber move is remember when Uber went public, it wanted to be the Amazon of transportation, a platform. It's quickly scaling back on those plans. Getting micro mobility um, off its balance sheet is another indication of this. Um, and they're becoming more and more dependent on ride sharing. There's the food delivery business. But that is also an expensive one that's not making any money. Yeah, you mentioned food delivery. And Dan, I, I wonder about Let's expand this outside of just ride sharing. Sure. Food delivery is popular right now for, for obvious sure. reasons. But at the same time, we were really looking forward to Airbnb's IPO as being some big indicator uh, of the IPO market, how things are trending. That takes on an entirely different meaning now. Is DoorDash now perhaps more important to see what they do in the coming months versus Airbnb? 
What do you think? It, it may be. I, I think, well, definitely more than Airbnb. I, it, it's hard to imagine Airbnb still goes public this year. I mean, there isn't, Airbnb doesn't have a business right now. And that's not the fault of Airbnb. It's a macro problem, but they simply don't have a business right now. DoorDash matters. We, we saw the Grubhub numbers. Those were not terribly good. And, and I understand DoorDash would argue that they are not Grubhub and vice versa, but those weren't great. And, and even Uber Eats, it's true these things have become more important and more valuable, but there have been increased disputes between some of these companies and the restaurants. That certainly happened. They also, there's, there's a lot of restaurants they used to work with that simply aren't open at all right now, aren't doing takeout because they just think it, it become, they're just losing more by doing so if they were also a dine-in restaurant. DoorDash matters a lot. It's hard though, again, for me to imagine that they will go public anytime soon, even for them with the increased demand their model is not right now what they expected it to be just in terms of the way they have to operate in terms of the extra sanitation. So, Dan, okay, X food, unless you're Instacart delivering peanut butter or, or DoorDash delivering takeout, is the sharing economy in hibernation dead? What do you say? I think it's definitely in hibernation right now. By the way, Instacart's an important one to notice, right? Because I, I think if we, were, if we, the three of us, were having a conversation about the sharing economy three months ago, we would have talked Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and Postmates, and we probably wouldn't have talked about Instacart. They are now kind of the, the one that has actually become vital, truly vital for lots of Americans to, to be able to eat, more so than the other ones have. But yeah, look, it, it, the, the whole idea of the sharing economy was I don't need to own something. I can borrow yours or borrow somebody or, or use one somebody I don't know. That's the exact opposite of how all of us are being told to live right now. The, the value of having your own car, your own bed right now is, is huge because you know what you've put in there. Yeah. Instacart. I mean, I, a few months ago, it was somebody to go grocery shopping for me. Why do I need that now? Yeah, a lot of people need that. It, was Dan, a, it used to be convenience. Now it's essential. Yeah, yeah. We, we could continue this conversation, and, but uh, we got to go. Great to hear from both of you. And coming up. A battle is brewing in the education world as to when colleges should open and how. We'll speak with the president of the Arizona University who says they're absolutely planning to open. Plus, a $39 billion merger that's created a new behemoth in the telecom industry. We will speak with the man behind the deal, Mike Fries, the CEO of Liberty Global. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get the latest on the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for the headlines at this hour. Sue? Thank you, John. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo is extending that state's moratorium on evictions an additional 60 days through mid-August. The state will also buy excess farm goods and donate them to food banks in an effort to feed an estimated 20,000 struggling families. Frontier Airlines will drop its open-seat fee policy after being criticized for profiting off of people's fear. 
The airline originally planned to charge passengers extra to sit next to an empty middle seat, unlike several of its larger competitors, which have already said that they would keep middle seats for empty for free. And the street artist Banksy hailing healthcare workers as superheroes in his latest piece on display at an English hospital. The artist captioned the piece, Game Changer, on Instagram. And indeed they are. As always, you can get more on our coronavirus coverage by heading over to CNBC.com. John, I'll send it back to you. All right. Thank you, Sue. And as the reopening debate continues, colleges and universities are grappling with the question of whether to resume classes in the fall or to have some in person, some distance. The University of Arizona says it has a plan to test, trace and treat its students and staff as it resumes in-person classes in the fall. For more, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Robbins, president of the University of Arizona. Uh, Dr. Robbins, good afternoon. Good afternoon, John. Thanks for inviting me on your program. Uh, great to have you. So University of Arizona, uh, on the upper end, as far as the number of students who you have, tell me, how long were you developing this plan? How much of it involves really having all the students on campus? How many do you expect to remain distanced? Well, we started making the plan to for reentry once we uh, got into this term and saw how our online and distance learning would work. We, we made that decision back in uh, mid-March. Uh, and we knew that uh, that the students wanted to come back. I was hearing from all of our students as I went around. They were on spring break. They had to come back, get their belongings, and go back uh, home to shelter in place. Right. And I, you know, was talking to them and and have heard from many of them directly uh, from their parents, from our alumni that uh, they sought to have that on-campus experience. So we've got a total of forty-five thousand students. We're not really sure how many will come back. Uh, it'll look very different. We're about 110 days out from uh, opening our fall term, but uh, we've got plans, as you uh, rightly uh, outlined, our 3T program, uh, testing, tracing, and treating our students. Uh, and we think that uh, although it won't be obviously 100% safe, uh, we want to try to make it uh, as safe as possible uh, for our students, our faculty, and our staff to return right. to semi-normal activities. Of course, there'll be a lot of social distancing, people wearing masks, uh, and it'll me, be a hybrid approach. Tell me, Dr. Robbins, about the uh, frequency of testing, because I assume you're not going to just test once and then that's it, uh, because you got people out in the community interacting with people who aren't students, all kinds of things, and the frequency of cleaning, uh, because even though a lot of students aren't in a high-risk category, I imagine a lot of your faculty, a lot of your staff are. Yeah, so that's a very good point. Uh, we've got two different modalities. I think you probably know we early on uh, developed our own test kits uh, because we didn't want to be at the end of the supply chain. And uh, that was for viral testing. And we developed a, a very highly accurate uh, antibody test. So we're offering that antibody test to all uh, 60,000 members of our family, uh, students, faculty, and staff. And then the, the algorithm we're developing for uh, testing for viral uh, uh, load is, uh, it will be uh, for all symptomatic patients, of course, for mm -hmm. all symptomatic students or members of our community. And then we're, we're going to have, uh, looking for hot spots. we'll use um, contact tracing. Uh, we'll actually use wow. uh, 
uh, uh, effluents from building the um, to look to see if we can determine that there may be a hot spot before anybody becomes symptomatic or sick. I, I want to ask you also, um, be, being the kind of school you are, about sports. It's important from a cultural perspective. It's important for a revenue perspective. I believe you've said anticipated losses in revenue over the 15 months through June 2021 are $250 million. But what's going to happen with sports if they are going to come back in the fall in just over 100 days? I imagine you've got to have preparations for that happening right now. Will they come back at any point you expect to have uh, crowds in stands? Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, you know, I got uh, on the on the homepage of ESPN, fortunately or unfortunately, on the day of the NFL draft saying, in my gut, I don't see people in Arizona Stadium or our stadiums around college football. Uh, since then, uh, I, I've gotten more information from our conferences and the NCAA. I, I think there's a plan to try to play games. It'll probably be a reduced uh, schedule, may start a little later. But I, I don't think it'll be with uh, uh, with people in the in the in the stands. Um, we're watching what's going on with the PGA Tour, NASCAR, NFL is supposed to make a big announcement. Um, but but the first thing that has to happen is the campuses have got to invite students back, which we plan to do. And we're working uh, with our sports teams. I think you'll see them uh, come back, and there'll probably be some uh, activities and games played this fall but probably uh, initially slowly ramping into no fans initially, and then we'll just have to see how the public health uh, barometers that we're using to monitor, the, monitor this uh, work out for us. Yeah, that's, that's going to be tough. Which, which is a lower risk, gathering outside in a stadium or gathering inside in sports bars, dorm rooms, uh, fraternities? Yep. Uh, who knows? I'm, su- I'm sure you'll work hard to figure it out. Thank you, Dr. Robert Roberts, for being with us. Thank you, John. And coming up, Liberty Global CEO Mike Fries is going to join us. We will discuss the company's mega merger today, the future of telecom, 5G, a lot more. Plus, Silicon Valley is shedding thousands of jobs amid this pandemic. We're going to look at what areas are getting hit the hardest, what we could see when the economy recovers. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a check on the markets, some of today's big movers with Dom Chu. Dom. All right. So, John, markets are solidly higher as the S&P 500 nears that 2,900 level. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq Composite has now recouped all of its year-to-date losses. The rally, as you can see here, is pretty broad-based. Every sector in the S&P 500 in positive territory. You've got cyclical sectors like energy, financials, and materials leading the way higher. Meanwhile, consumer discretionary, healthcare, and consumer staples are the relative laggards, though still in the green. Some of those stocks to watch today include JetBlue, after the airline posted quarterly results that missed analyst expectations, but some investors are becoming more comfortable with the idea that it is taking the necessary steps to contain costs and solidify its balance sheet. Next up, you got shares of PayPal after the payments processor also fell shy of consensus estimates for both profits and revenues, but stronger trends in transaction volumes and customer usage are driving some of those gains. And then we'll end on Peloton, which hit a record high in trading after the maker of high-end streaming video-enabled exercise equipment said sales jumped 66% over the same time last year as more customers look for alternatives to exercising in gyms during the current coronavirus pandemic. John, that's a big move. Remember, that stock went public last September 
at $29 per share. Back over to you. Yeah, who could have guessed this would happen? Thank you, Dom. Turning now to retail, Neiman Marcus, saddled with debt, hit by the pandemic, filing for bankruptcy today with a deal to hand over the business to its creditors. Companies furloughed most of its 14,000 workers, closed its 43 stores. Neiman Marcus says it secured enough financing from creditors to fund operations through this process. It's now the second major retailer to file for bankruptcy during this pandemic. We've been talking about J. Crew up to this point. Moving on, it's one of the largest media mergers since the pandemic started. Liberty Global and Telefonica agreeing to combine their U.K. operations. Julia Borston joins me now with all the details. Julia. John, that's right. Liberty Global and Telefonica are teaming up to create the largest phone and Internet operator in the U.K. with a joint venture between Liberty's Virgin Mobile and Telefonica's O2, which will be valued at nearly $39 billion. This is the latest merger from John Malone, and it creates a rival to BT, which has been the only U.K. operator which has both a mobile and fixed network. This new deal unites Virgin, which has the second largest broadband network in the U.K., with O2's largest mobile network, now together, the combined company has 46 million customers. The deal, which is expected to close in mid-2021, was announced last night after Liberty Global reported higher revenue than expected in its earnings. You see Liberty Global shares up over 4%. Joining me now to discuss is Liberty Global CEO Mike Fries. Mike, thanks so much for talking to us today. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. So, Mike, with so much economic uncertainty right now, why did you move forward and make Liberty Global's biggest transaction ever during this coronavirus crisis? Well, that's a good question. Uh, To be honest, this transaction has been moving for quite some time. I would probably flip it and say that we didn't want to let the coronavirus and the pandemic stop us from completing what will be a great transaction for shareholders, consumers uh, and and for government and for the U.K., Now, what we're talking about here are consumer businesses, mobile and broadband. Obviously, people are still using these different services. But are you concerned that people are going to be downgrading to less costly plans because of what's going on with the economic downturn and the coronavirus? No, no, we haven't seen that. I mean, for the you know, our services are critical and vital and essential. And at this point in time, our networks are robust and reliable. We're not seeing any issues there. Uh, There are going to be some consumers with economic challenges, and we're doing what we can to protect those consumers, keep them connected. Uh, But if anything, this has demonstrated, uh, you know, the value of our products and services uh, now more than ever. So, no, we don't see that as a risk. Now, beyond just this $39 billion deal in the U.K., you have businesses around the world with exposure to both broadband and cable and also mobile What do you see in terms of the health of the consumer around the world and specifically the risk of cord cutting? Well, I I would say two things. Number one, the demand for broadband and connectivity has never been higher. Uh, So consumption on our networks is growing, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 percent, depending on where you are. Uh, So that's a positive thing. Um, Definitely people are watching more video. That's a good thing for us. Uh, Remember, connectivity is the killer app for us. So when they watch more video, we win as well. So there's going to be some disruption and continued disruption in the in the video space. Uh, but remember, our business, we're not advertising driven. We don't have exposure to a lot of the industries that are struggling. So we're going to come out of this, we think, quite well. Uh, we, today, we didn't uh, we didn't change our guidance. We didn't suspend our guidance. So we feel pretty good about our our business in the short and medium term here. Hey, Mike, it's, it's John Fort. Uh, looking at your two businesses, uh, a common denominator 
is 5G. I wonder how has this crisis affected your plans for capital spending, uh, particularly on 5G through this? Have you lost time because people are, are sheltering in place? Have things maybe sped up because people aren't on the road? And, and are you still projecting on spending the same amount on the build out over the next few years? Great question. So when you fixed and mobile convergence is happening across Europe, this is the fifth transaction we've announced where we put a mobile company together with one of our broadband companies. Um, consumers are winning because they're getting faster connectivity, better connectivity. Governments win because we have the confidence and the scale to invest. Um, it's a win-win for everybody. And we don't see actually any impediment to our continued growth. For us, it's two things. It's building out fiber and, and one gig networks throughout the UK. We're the fastest network there today. We only cover half the country. And of course, O2 is the largest mobile operator and is advancing to 5G. So 5G and one gig, when they come together, that is a powerful combination. That's what this, com that's what this merger is all about. And what's your plan for marketing spend? Because operators like you guys are among the biggest marketing spenders. On the one hand, I guess one could argue uh, people know they need this, so maybe you need to spend less. But on the other hand, you, you still want to drive business through this. So are, are you spending yeah. more? Are you spending just as much? We're, we're finding that sales have trended down but are stable from pre-crisis, but churn or disconnects have also come down. So our business is stable. And I think all operators are really you know, just trying to keep the stability and the rational behavior in the market during this crisis. Uh, when we come out of the crisis, obviously, I think it'll get back to normal and get, get, you know, become competitive or more competitive again. But at this point in time, we're all, you know, our sh many of our shops are closed, so mobile handset sales are down and things of that nature. Uh, but churn is down, too. So our business is running it, you know, pretty much at plan. Um, and that's a very good thing for us, obviously. Now, Mike, looking to the other end of this crisis, I wonder if you think consumer spending is going to be fundamentally changed. Do you think we'll see a shift away from the cable TV bundle and further towards embracing streaming plans and, and mobile? Where do you see consumers moving on the other end of this? And what does that mean for you? Well, I'd say this, I think, demonstrates the power of fixed mobile convergence. Uh, connectivity is what people want, and they want it from one provider. I mean, only, uh, you know, we know that virgin customers who don't have O2 are excited about having O2 in their bundle. O2 customers who don't have virgin media broadband are excited about having virgin media broadband in their, in their bundle. We've seen it in eight other countries where we operate. Churn goes down, NPS goes up. So providing consumers with a package of fixed and mobile connectivity is is really important and i think will you know certainly help us through this period of time um you know consumers there will be a percentage of the economy more generally that is going to have a harder time coming back i think some consumers you know will will not re-enter as aggressively as they did but our products and services are so essential so vital to their to their lives i don't see us really falling into that category all right thank you mike freeze and our own julia borston thanks now ahead, while every other state's unemployment fund has declined due to the virus, Florida's has increased. We're going to look at why and the fallout. Plus, whether it's high tech, low tech, or no tech, the employment picture in Silicon Valley is bleak. Is this permanent damage or will reopening the economy get things back on track? We explore it in just a minute. Welcome back. Out just moments ago, Facebook is expected to announce today most of its employees will be given the choice to work from home through the end of the year. 
Meanwhile, more than 33 million people have lost their jobs since economies began shutting down seven weeks ago. Silicon Valley has not been immune. Kate Rooney joins me now with a look at how hard startups have been hit. Kate? Hey, John, good to see you. The job losses are adding up. And Silicon Valley, the epicenter, of course, for young tech companies, is seeing the biggest effect. Since mid-March, we've seen more than 17,000 layoffs at Bay Area startups. New York was the next hardest hit. And globally, the total has topped 44,000 for VC-backed companies. That's according to one real-time tracker. Transportation, food, and real estate saw the biggest effects. And as far as companies, Uber went through the deepest round of job cuts, followed by Groupon and Airbnb. This marks a huge shift in the tech job market. Recruiters tell me a few months ago these jobs were really hard to fill as demand outweighed supply. Going forward, this influx of new candidates makes it harder on those who are actually job hunting, especially as hiring stalls and VC investors are urging their portfolio companies to cut costs. John? Yeah, thanks, Kate. Uh, Let's dive deeper into the Silicon Valley layoffs and whether the situation is going to improve as the economy starts to reopen. Joining me now is Carl Gordino, president and CEO of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, and Casey Newton, Silicon Valley editor at The Verge. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, Carl, I remember sitting with you 20 years ago uh, in the boardroom of the San Jose Mercury News as as we were looking at the dot-com uh, implosion and issues related, you have seen a lot, uh, and the organization you lead, which represents 350 or so um, uh, big companies in the Valley, where does this rank, and, and what kind of a recovery are the leaders there telling you they expect? Thank you. In my role as CEO for the past 23 years, we have seen very steep and deep economic downturns. The dot-com bust of 2000 through 2002 saw 119,000 job losses in the Bay Area. Then 2008 through 2010, similar amount of job losses took 82 months to get those jobs back. We think this one may be even steeper and deeper. Wow because it's not just an economic downturn, it's, it's uh, because of this global pandemic and health crisis that we're experiencing. And it's harder to know when there's going to be treatments and cures to help turn this around. But Carl, at, at the same time, Silicon Valley is very different now from the way it looked then. I mean, you didn't have the same kinds of power concentrated in, in Apple, um, in Google, In Adobe, even in downtown San Jose, you've got these companies that while they are affected, their financial strength remains. Is that going to lessen perhaps the blow to the ecosystem? It's hard to say, but it's an excellent question. We've been doing CEO surveys about every 10 days in the last six weeks since the shutdowns and the shelter in place orders began. Our last survey from just two weeks ago, 95 of our 350 member innovation economy CEOs responded. And let me just provide the numbers for for your viewers. 42% are hiring only for essential positions. 27.5% have frozen all hiring. 12% were already in layoffs, 3.2% were considering layoffs, and only 15% was it business as usual. Hmm. And that has shifted like tectonic plates in just the last two weeks. We're gonna survey again next week, 
And we think it's going to be a much tougher environment now. And you mentioned Well, I want to be in touch, yeah, for sure, uh, on those numbers. I want to bring in Casey Newton for sure. Casey, are you seeing uh, maybe a, a bifurcation between the big companies, powerful ones like the ones I was just mentioning, and what's happening in startup land where uh, many companies had been on this grow, grow, grow trajectory, not paying that much attention perhaps to cash burn. They certainly have to now. That's exactly right. The The whole game here is to buy yourself time. And for the biggest companies in Silicon Valley who have rich cash balances, they're going to be able to ride out 18, 24 months without much of a problem. And in many cases, they're going to benefit from acquiring tons and tons of new customers during this time. And they're only going to grow more powerful. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a bunch of startups who maybe had a year's worth of revenue, but that year's worth of revenue was assuming that we were going to continue to be in good times. And now instead, we see a large sector of the economy in a deep freeze. And so that's requiring everyone uh, to basically rip up their plans. So what happens to the workers, Casey? I I know you you watch not only uh, the workers who are tech savvy, but also the workers who tech companies like Facebook, like Google rely on to keep platforms operating. Uh, Do the workers come out okay in this or, or not? Well, so the good news for contractors at companies like Google and Facebook so far is that those companies have agreed to continue paying them, in some cases, even when they're not doing their work or having to do a different kind of work from home. So there has been a benefit in being attached to those big companies. At the smaller companies, they're looking to cut whatever they can. And so I do expect that's going to have a huge impact on the folks who are cleaning the offices, uh, who are doing the catering, or maybe even who are doing some of that content moderation work. So yeah, these cuts are going to be felt really deeply. Wow. And Uh, and Casey's point is excellent because it reminds us that in our economy, we are all linked together, whether that job is specifically in high tech or the important support services that support those jobs. Too often, often indeed, we, we forget or can forget about those workers in the economy who are getting especially hard hit. And Carl, we do want to get those numbers from you uh, because it's such a good look at how the Valley is responding um, and get those next week. Carl Guardino of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, Casey Newton of The Verge, thanks for joining me. And ahead, as millions of Americans file for unemployment, Florida's facing lots of issues, and now its residents are suing. The details are ahead. Welcome back. An emergency hearing in Florida as lawyers ask a judge to step in and expedite unemployment benefits. Rahel Solomon is here with a closer look at the path forward there. Rahel? Hi, John. So what's happening in Florida has really captured national attention. And to put this in perspective, Florida's insured unemployment rate is about 6.3 percent. That's among the lowest in the nation. The national average is 15.5 percent. So these lawyers argue that Many more Floridians should be on the rolls, but that the system is failing the very people it's supposed to protect. So they've asked a judge in Tallahassee to step in and hire a new company to run Florida's unemployment system that has been plagued with site crashes and glitches. More than a million Floridians have applied for unemployment. Florida officials say that they've processed 69 percent of claims filed, but paid just 43.2 percent, meaning that most of the people who have gotten through the system and successfully applied are still waiting for benefits. So lawyers representing the state argue that 
they've removed some burdens, streamlined the process, and added thousands more workers to assist, and that there are built-in delays as they verify claims. So, John, ultimately, the judge did grant the state's request to dismiss this case. And this, as we learned today, another 173,000 Floridians applied for unemployment last week. I can't state this enough. This has really become a national scandal, John. And, yeah, Rahel, I remember reading about this as we were heading into the crisis, and it seemed uh, the argument was that Florida structured things to keep people off the unemployment rolls. The system wasn't designed to work really that well. Do you think that changes out of this um, or not? I think a lot of people hope so. I think a lot of people are depending on this. There certainly has been a lot of political back and forth about who is to blame. This system was implemented about seven years ago when Rick Scott was governor. That aside, I think most people who desperately need these benefits argue at this point, just get it done. So they're hoping maybe for some regional help centers to help them get through the process. But uh, who's to blame is a question depending on who you ask. John, I'll send it back to you. Right, yeah. A lot of people like small government until you need big things from government. Uh, That'll do it for The Exchange. But coming up next, Harvard's Ken Rogoff is going to make his case for negative interest rates. The CEO of Penn National Gaming will tell us why he's staying positive in the long term despite the ongoing pandemic. Power Lunch is up after a quick break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. FedEx.